Welcome to the Figure Fit Podcast, where we discuss fitness, paleo nutrition, yoga, meditation, spirituality, and other ways to have a happy, peaceful, and abundant life. And here's your host, Liz Nearswicky. Hello, loves. Welcome back to the show. I'm so happy that you're here today. I have Maria Claps on the show again. This is round two for hormones. And last week, if you missed the show, you're going to want to tune in. That one was for um, hormones for perimenopausal women. So women who are pre-menopause, maybe going through menopause or even uh, coming out of menopause. And even if you're not even close to menopause, just listening to this episode so you know what is going to happen to you or what could happen to you when that time of your life rolls around. So ladies, the episode is really for you. Gentlemen, for those of you who have a significant other that you love and you want to know more about what she is going through and what she needs during this time of her life, you would really benefit from listening to the show. Okay, so today I brought Maria back because last week I learned so much and there's just so much more to talk about. So today we're diving into Hormones 101. So without further ado, here is my special guest, Maria Claps. All right, so Maria, thank you so much for coming back on the show today. I'm so happy to have you back. Oh, my pleasure to be a, a two-time invited guest. I'm thrilled. <laughs> well, this is an important topic and you know, in the last show you said we could definitely go deeper. So I want to do that. I think that this is such important information that a lot of people overlook. You you are so right about that. I think one of the reasons we've become so collectively unhealthy is that we farm out, um, we farm, like we farm out our taxes to the accountant, which for most of us is probably a great idea. Um, <laughs> we also farm out our health to you know, usually our physician and, and at times, of course, you know, that's a, a good idea, but to, you know, mentally check your brain at the door when you walk through the doctor's office and not be emotionally, mentally, even financially invested in one's own health. And I think there are, there are problems with that. We just don't know. We don't know how to, you know, observe the body. Um, and a lot of us have actually even forgotten what it feels like to be healthy, but looks like I'm going off on a tangent already. Well, I, feel I think passionately. that that's, I think that that's already really good information and you're so right because, you know, there's so many things you just said that brought up memories in my own head about when I, I was 10 years old when I first started my period. I was young. Oh, wow. Okay. And I had a whole year of cysts and problems and just actually I was on my period for my entire sixth grade year. So they put me on um, birth control. And I would, and then that fixed it. So I never questioned it again. I never really looked into it, you know. So you're right. We're not really taught by our educational system really all of this information that is so, so important. Um, I, I feel that when girls are going through puberty and boys are going through puberty, they need to be taught about the hormones behind the puberty, not just sex or no sex and safe sex it's like no this is way deeper this is a holistic thing that they are that is happening this is a holistic natural thing that is happening to these adolescents and they're not taught the reality behind what's really truly going on chemically <laughs> yeah right i totally agree and, and um, with that, why don't we get started on a bit of a hormones 101? Because you want to know something? I would say that 
you know, we aren't taught that when we're young behind, except for really like the basics and, you know, the sex and babies and eggs and sperm, you know, that we perhaps learn in health class, but then we don't really get even into understanding, like a, you know, the phases of the menstrual cycle. I, I didn't learn this until probably my 30s. Um, so I would love to if we can kind of just get started with a with a hormones 101. Absolutely. Let's do that. Okay. And, and because my specialty is female, no, no offense to the guys, um, we're going to keep it um, on females. But I always do say that if there are men listening in, I love when that happens because I think when men understand women's cycles more and women's endocrine systems are definitely more complex, they're fragile, they're exquisite, but they're complex. And when men understand that, we have a better world, a better relationships. And I love enlightened dudes. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I just, you know, totally welcome the guys to listen in on, on the female stuff. But okay, so let's talk um, female sex hormones. So we have the, the two biggies are estrogen and progesterone. And these are produced by the ovaries. Um, they are produced in some peripheral sites throughout the body, like, you know, the fat cells can produce some estrogen, the adrenals can produce some of these hormones, but really, really small amounts and not really needed, you know, for the purpose of today's discussion, we'll just say it, it is the ovaries that produce the estrogen and the progesterone. Now, estrogen is considered sort of like the queen hormone, the diva. It is proliferative which means that it is it helps to it's the hormone that basically makes us feminine gives us breasts and hips it also has uh, an amazing amount of additional uh, jobs in the body so it interacts with serotonin in the brain and it helps to maintain bone health and heart health and there are interestingly enough a um, little bit of a sidetrack but there are even There's even now a theory that we have certain gut bacteria that can code for estrogen. So it's a really fascinating hormone. And unfortunately, a lot of women are afraid of estrogen because of its association with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer or uterine cancer. But knowing about it and understanding the levels it should be in your body is super important. So it's it's a great hormone. And um, it is again it's considered cell proliferative so it's a growth hormone then what we have is we have progesterone now progesterone is sort of like estrogen's little younger sister okay and it 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 keeps progest it keeps estrogen in check so it's super important it doesn't really get as much play or press time as estrogen does um but it its main job is to keep estrogen from growing or or like proliferating out of control so progesterone also is considered our calming soothing hormone and it is made in the ovaries but really only when we ovulate so i just gave you a mouthful any questions there i want to pause and come up for air i don't have any questions yet no okay okay awesome okay so Progesterone and estrogen, they dance throughout the the female cycle. So they kind of, you know, um, wax and wane and they are at, you know, high points 
at certain times and low points at certain times, but for women who have hormone problems, and just let me say that it probably should have backed up, hormones, they travel in the bloodstream, right? They go from certain glands, and this is for all hormones, they travel in the bloodstream to receptor cells that are all over the body. So we pretty much have estrogen receptors all over the body. We even have estrogen receptors in the skin. And estrogen uh, is another interesting job is that it's really charged with keeping the skin healthy and plump looking and, you know, relatively wrinkle free. So this is another interesting job of estrogen. So that's what, what hormones do. And then they do their job and they act on those cells, those receptor cells. So a problem that some women seem to have in their, it can be as young as teens, but 20s, 30s, 40s, and even 50s, um, is that they have an issue called estrogen dominance. Now, this was first brought up by a brilliant physician. This, coin, this term was coined by a brilliant physician named John R. Lee. He's a medical doctor, and he wrote several books, and he did coin the very popular term estrogen dominance. Now, the term itself can be a little bit misleading because it sounds perhaps that you have too much estrogen. That's actually not always the case because what it is, it's a relative relationship of estrogen to progesterone. So you have estrogen dominance if you have, I'm gonna mention a few different ways it can appear. You can have high estrogen and normal levels of progesterone. You can have high estrogen and, um, let me just think about that, high estrogen, normal progesterone. You can even have high estrogen and even high progesterone, but it's just not high enough. You can have, and, and get this, some people are, get a little bit confused by this, but I think you'll understand when I explain that it's a ratio. You can have low estrogen and still be estrogen dominant, and all that really means is that you have low estrogen and even lower progesterone. So I want to talk a little bit about estrogen dominance. Have you heard the term before, Liz? I have heard of it, yeah, yes. Yeah, it's a pretty popular term if you're in the in the holistic and alternative uh, fields. But okay, so some of the symptoms of estrogen dominance are things like, well, the classic one is PMS, and could be menstrual migraines, moodiness, um, mini breakdowns around the time of your period, uh, could be bloating, and just general discomfort that that typically happens for women uh, about five days before their menstrual cycle. So that's a pretty good sign that you might have some estrogen dominance going on. And I will just add in some inflammation as well. So that is, that's really estrogen dominance in a nutshell. Um, do you have any questions about that? So how you would find that out? How would you find that out? Okay, great. So that's a great question. So like I said, estrogen and progesterone, they do kind of wax and wane throughout the cycle. And the best way to know for sure if a woman is estrogen dominant beyond just um, symptoms, so, which are can be pretty severe and have to occur in that one to two week, they, should, they occur after ovulation. If they do occur prior to ovulation, then you really can't claim that as estrogen dominance 
And I would definitely recommend a woman visit her physician if she is experiencing these symptoms like all month long. Then, mm-hmm. but okay, so the best thing to do would be to do a hormone test. There, hormone tests vary widely in quality. There is saliva, blood, 24-hour urine, and dried urine. But let me just talk about the timing on this, okay? For mm-hmm. a woman with a quote-unquote normal 28-day cycle. The best day to test is day 19, 20, 21, like that, because what we are looking for is that post-ovulation bump in progesterone. So we want to test, ideally, when progesterone is at its highest. Okay. Okay. So now, a, a, a normal cycle, really, textbook normal, is considered anywhere from 21 to 35 days. What if you don't have a normal cycle and you want to do a hormone test? No matter the type of hormone test, um, you still need to find that post-ovulation bump in progesterone. So if a woman doesn't know when she ovulates, it can be a little bit of a challenge because you don't want to spend about $200 on a test and not do it at the exact, you know, the the right time. So Um, when do you count from? Do you count from the day period ended? No. So counting uh, day one is the first day of bleeding. Oh, Okay. Yeah. So figure, you know, you're doing the test um, day 19 would be 19 days after your period started. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So now if you have an irregular period, what I recommend is that women get the ovulation uh, test predictor at, you know, their local drugstore and use those um, little sticks that you pee on much, much like a pregnancy test. And then what you need to do is do the test about six days, about five to six days after ovulation um, so that you can catch that bump in progesterone. So that's what we do with women who are, you know, just have an irregular period. Okay. Or just don't know when they ovulate so that they can get that. That's It's pretty important. Like to That's how you find out if you're estrogen dominant because, you know, you might be quote unquote, estrogen dominant, if you take the the test at the wrong time. So mm. taking it at the correct time is, is pretty important. So somebody could get, what is that called? What is that stick that you pee on? What is that called? Yeah, I think it's called you know, OPK, te- you know, test, but it's just an ovulation um, predictor available at the local drugstore. There probably are several different brands. Okay. And then that you do that. And then that tells you kind of where you're at estrogen wise. No, and that will actually tell you if if you've ovulated. Oh, okay. Okay. So remember, so we produce progesterone upon ovulation. In fact, if we don't ovulate, and that is common in a couple of scenarios, if women have PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome, the most common um, endocrine disorder of uh, you know childbearing women. And if they have that, they're really not ovulating or they're ovulating irregularly. Um, So they typically don't produce progesterone or don't produce as much as we would like to see. And then, of course, we've got women that are going into perimenopause. And we can actually talk about that and hormones. But if if women that are going into perimenopause are ovulating irregularly, and so they, you know, they can sometimes have a period that is 30 days, you know, and then, then they can, 
the next period is 45 days and then then they go three or four months without a period so that's really a very classic sign of perimenopause now again that is ovulation is slowing down for women in perimenopause and finding the right time to take the test can be a bit of a challenge it can be done but we want to ovulation just think about it this way ovulation equals progesterone Mm -hmm. okay right and if we're not ovulating um we are not really producing progesterone again there's a little bit happening in peripheral sites I believe there's a little bit that might be produced in the brain, but we're talking tiny, tiny amounts. And we really want to get the progesterone that is coming from the ovaries. Okay. All right. Good yeah. stuff. Thank you. <laughs> uh, then, then we have, let's see. Okay, so hormones 101. Then we have testosterone. Oh, and, you know, actually, I just want to circle back to estrogen a little bit. I said I wasn't going to speak about the guys, but I do want to add this little thing in. Uh, I'm not really well versed in reading hormone results on men, but I do know that men can actually be estrogen dominant as well. Um, And the classic symptom of physical and visible symptom for men would be man boobs, just too much estrogen Mm. um, for the guys. So, and estrogen and progesterone are primarily female hormones, but men have them as well, Mm -hmm. obviously in much, much, much less concentrations. Um, and then we have testosterone, which is the quote unquote male hormone, but women have it as well and not nearly as much as the guys do, but testosterone is, um, you know, it's just, it's a hormone of vitality and drive and motivation and sex drive. Although it's not the only thing implicated in sex drive as a health coach who works with women who, um, you know, on their hormonal issues, I often have gotten the question from women, well, you know, if my testosterone is good, why is my sex drive in the tank? And that's because, you know, libido is a multifactorial thing. It's not just about <laughs> testosterone. That is a, a lot loaded of question. <laughs> yeah, a lot of women think that, you know, they're going to go ahead and replace testosterone, which is you know, it's, it's doable. You know, you can do a little testosterone cream. Definitely a physician is, is what you need. You know, I prefer people work with a medical doctor. I, it's, it is a, um, obviously not an over the counter hormone. Um, it's, it's pretty tightly controlled. Um, but well, I have to say something on that one. Yeah, please uh, do. The fierce independent warrior goddess inside of me is screaming. Um, a lot of that, like Osho, you know who Osho is, the great philosopher? He's, he wrote a book called uh, Love, Freedom, and Aloneness. And he says that, you know, when you truly love, it's not containing. So there's a thousand and one things that go wrong when you start to contain something. And he's like, you may be so, so, so in love with someone today. And then you bring them home and then you don't like the way that they, you know, snore. And so all of a sudden you don't love them like you once did. And so <laughs> that just made me think of that book. And I was like, oh, well, that sex drive is related to those a thousand and one things that are in the way. <laughs> oh, totally. Totally. Like I said, um, women think that they see that they have low testosterone and they think, well, let me try some testosterone cream. OK, yeah, that that is 
probably a decent idea under the guidance of a physician, mm -hmm. um, but you have to work on relationship issues and you have to work on, you know, if you don't feel good about yourself, um, you're probably not going to want to have sex mm -hmm. or, yeah. you know, maybe you're not doing any exercise. Right. Well, that's going to hurt that too. So testosterone that. can definitely play a role, but it's certainly, certainly not a magic bullet by any means but yes. okay avoid the escape button people <laughs> you gotta do the work to heal all of it yeah oh absolutely right so um okay so that that is uh we li i like to see testosterone in range and you know when it's too low then i am typically making a referral out with the caveat that it's not the only thing that they need to work on um, now, the greater issue for some women is that it's too high. And testosterone is an androgen. It's a male hormone, but although, like I said, we have it as well. And when it is too high, then some of the symptoms that are highly, highly correlated uh, is things like rogue facial hairs, acne, um, could be you know weight gain, could be even things like... Um, mild rage or, you know, just f things like that, things that we associate with, you know, muscle pumping, you know, steroid addled men, you know, the rage, the testosterone. But f mostly for women, it tends to be like acne and, you know, rogue facial hairs like that. And then unfortunately, hair where you don't want it and hair, um, hair where you don't want it, the face, and then not enough hair where you do want it can sadly be associated with like thinning scalp hair. So high androgens, and I will say this, high androgens, highly, highly, highly correlated with high insulin. Mm. Insulin is a hormone that is, it's, a, it's an alpha hormone. It's produced by the pancreas. And as you know, insulin works to take our sugar, glucose, out of our bloodstream and put it into the cell's where it belongs so when do you think we have high insulin liz what, what do you think food wise causes us to have high insulin oh well i know this answer after oh, after we eat any carbohydrates yep yep and then you know the the less the the lesser quality you know lower fiber you know the quote-unquote bad stuff the white stuff the breads you know, that's going to even cause more of an insulin response, candy, sugar, all that stuff. Um, and so then that high insulin actually upregulates um, an enzyme in the body called aromatase. Now, aromatase is, is responsible for estrogen production. And so that can be a cause of, of estrogen dominance like we spoke about before. But here's the deal. This is really interesting. In women aromatase can cause a woman's estrogen to flip over to testosterone and causing um, her to have high androgens. So there's a huge correlation between high testosterone and insulin, you know, just high insulin and insulin resistance. And then also just to throw in there, that is also very much um, has to be explored in the case of PCOS, which is a very, very, very common endocrine disorder okay so, so i yeah. have to say this because this just popped into my mind sure this makes sense because i saw this woman last week and she was huge morbidly obese 
and she had a mustache. Like, uh, yeah, like she mm-hmm. just was like that light, softer, not like a man's, you know what I mean? Right. But when she walked past me, I was like, whoa, how that? And then I was just yeah. like, how does that happen? So that makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's pr- pretty sad. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So um, that is, that's testosterone for you. And um, let's see, we covered estrogen. That's actually, that's actually testosterone, but that's actually um, crazy poor diet, eating way too many sugars, not understanding nutrition at oh, all. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's, there's just that tie-in with insulin and the testosterone, and sure, yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. So people with high androgens should have their insulin tested, and insulin is, it's a little bit, I would say, the provenance of the functional medicine community. Um, it's not typically tested when a woman goes for her general physical or goes for her typical blood work, which is usually uh, CBC, complete blood count, and a, and a CMP, which is a comprehensive metabolic panel, um, you you have to ask. You have to ask for insulin, you know, and it's a great test. You want to have fasting insulin ideally be, um, you know, like I would say the functional range is like between two and six. But interestingly enough, on most lab tests, the you'll see the range be anywhere from two to 20, which is just just insanity. But so that's just another another good thing if you're struggling with hormone issues, you know, add that add that insulin marker to that test when you go. What was and, the test that you spoke about in the last episode? I forget. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, so we can talk about that. That's called the Dutch test, and it stands for Dried Urine Total Comprehensive Hormones. So that does test estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and then it tests DHEA. So I'll speak a little bit about DHEA. Um, that is a, uh, also considered an androgen. Um, it is made by the adrenal glands. So adrenal glands are a little walnut sized glands. They sit on top of the kidneys in the mid back. And it's, so, it's also a vitality hormone and it counterbalances the effects of cortisol. So we'll get to that in a moment. Um, so it does look at DHEA and okay. So let's talk about cortisol. Now, again, the Dutch test talks, uh, we, it shows us cortisol but unlike a saliva test, which is a very common test in the functional medicine community, um, some MDs do it if they're functional doctors, um, lot of alternative health practitioners, um, you know, naturopaths do it, some chiropractors, I think. Saliva test, I think, is becoming less, it has less utility than a Dutch test. And, and I'm going to try to explain this. And I'm going to try to keep it as simple as possible, but please do interrupt me if you don't understand. Saliva shows us the free fraction of the hormone that is unbound and available and able to enter cells and do what it's supposed to do. Okay, because most hormones are bound by carrier proteins. Okay, so saliva will show the free fraction, but that's only about 2% of total cortisol production. The Dutch test, which is the dried urine test, which is super easy to do, shows you both the free fraction of cortisol, and then it shows something called total or metabolized cortisol, which is your total production for the day. 
So, so have you ever heard, Liz, of the, I'm sure you have, but I, I'm going to ask anyway, of the term adrenal fatigue? Oh, yeah. Okay. So adrenal fatigue um, is a bit of, it's, it's really going revision in the alternative health field and it doesn't really exist. Yes, low cortisol exists, but adrenal the adrenals do not just tire and they don't just give out and stop producing. So the great thing about the Dutch test is that it tells you free cortisol, which is what the saliva test will give you, but it also tells you metabolize or total and it will either confirm or not confirm your low cortisol situation that again so if you were to see low cortisol on a saliva test you are missing a piece of the puzzle so you could potentially be misled thinking you have low cortisol but remember that's only two percent of total production um, and you're you're not getting the metabolized cortisol picture so i don't use saliva at all anymore um, and i just we're just continuing to talk about the dutch test okay so we've got cortisol we covered estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, um, cortisol metabolites, which is metabolized cortisol. And then another amazing thing about the Dutch test and why I think every woman should have a Dutch test is because it gives us, it tells us what your estrogen is doing. So it gives you a total value for estrogen. And estrogen is like a use it and lose it hormone. So you want the body to benefit from the estrogen and then it goes through detoxification in the liver. And believe it or not, it actually comes out through the stool and the urine. So therefore, I'll just throw this little bonus point in. If you are constipated, chronic constipation can cause estrogen to recirculate in the bloodstream. So that's super important that you are going to the bathroom regularly. Oh, All right. Wow. So that's yeah. a whole nother host of problems. <laughs> right, right. So that, that's just one of the things that can cause one of the contributors to estrogen dominance. All right. So estrogen is important, but what's even more important is what's the body doing with the estrogen? And that's called metabolite. So estrogen breaks down into estrone, estradiol, and estriol. So that's E1, E2, E3. Estradiol is our most potent form of estrogen, and estrone is more the estrogen of our later years, like menopause, and estriol is a gentle estrogen, and it's considered more the estrogen of pregnancy. All women have all three, but that's just how to, that's just basically how they're characterized. Okay. So then those break down into metabolites, 2-hydroxyestrone, so 2-OH, 4-OH, and 16-OH. We really want our bodies to favor what we call the 2-OH pathway. So we want to see 70% of our metabolites form as 2-hydroxyestrone. That, uh, through research, shows us that that is considered more protective type of estrogen metabolites. All right, we want about 70% of that, or we want at least 70%, and it's okay if it's higher. We want to have no more than, I get these two mixed up, it's, then we, we have the balance remaining is 10 and 20. I believe the 4-OH, we don't want that higher than 10%. Now, we still need some, 
because it's we still need some. It's 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 can, it can potentially damage DNA. Um, this 4-hydroxyestrone, especially if it's not methylated, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but we still need some because it helps our bones and our heart. Um, and then we have 16-OH, and we don't want that higher than 20%. So occasionally, I see what I call like a flipped ratio. I see a woman who's got like only 20% of her 2-OH, and then she's got like, you know, 60% of her 16-OH, and that's like really not good. And the great thing about that is that is that there are very specific nutritional and supplement protocols that can help the body to start prioritizing the healthy metabolite pathway, which is the 2-OH pathway. So it's a little easier for me to explain this when I have some visuals, but let me know if you have any questions. Um, no, I mean, I don't, it's getting like heavy on the science, which I, I'm totally fine with that. Um, sometimes visuals are great, but we can't really do that right now. Yeah. 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 Right. So, I mean, like, I think people can just kind of like create the image in their head and uh, go from there. I mean, if you had anything that we could get out like to the community, that would be great. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So then we just have a, there's a, there's a process in the body called methylation and I won't go too deep into this because it can just be a little bit too nerdy, but basically your estrogen then has to be methylated and the Dutch test does show that, whether, you know, at kind of like what degree you're methylating that estrogen. And that's just an indirect measurement of liver health, really. Okay. And so that's it. That's that's the benefit of the Dutch test over a blood and a saliva test. So we'll just kind of keep it simple like that. Okay. Well, you can go as deep as you want. I mean, I don't – it doesn't bother me. I know there's a lot of science geeks on my listening to my oh, show. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's- like – I'm the kind of person that's like, I want all of it. Give it to me, all of it. All right, awesome. Well, let's let's actually go back to cortisol then. So okay. cortisol is made in the adrenal glands, um, and it is made when we are under stress. And now this is where some people kind of get this wrong. They think of stress as, you know, emotional stress or relationship stress. But stress can be, uh, so that's psychological, mental, emotional, but stress can be physiological. You can have... You can have a parasite, you can have gut dysbiosis, you can have inflammation. Um, that That is all stressful to the body and that those things can drive up, up cortisol. So stress comes in many different forms and most people when they think of it, they think of you know, the, the psychological stress. So we, cortisol is a fundamental, you know, homeostasis mechanism. It helps maintain us that homeostasis, that steady state, that amazing sort of innate knowledge of the body that keeps us base, keeps our blood sugar from either going too high or, or, or too low. And it keeps our acid base balanced. So homeostasis is amazing. Um, and we are amazing. Our bodies are amazing. Um, when we stop and think about all that it does, right, without, uh, you know, that without us put, really having any input into it. Oh, it's uh, incredible. Right? I know. I've always loved biology from even from high school and, and grammar school. But anyway, so. I know. It's funny because my son is in, uh, you know, science now and they're doing all these things and he he's really good at it. And then one day he came home and he goes, oh, it's just so annoying. And I said, oh. 
oh, like, no, <laughs> don't have that thought. It's the best thing you can actually learn right now. I said, you know, totally I had to tell him, I was like, you know, it might be, but one of these days you're going to want to know all of this. I know it might not be as fun as going out with your friends and, you know, laughing with them in the hallway. I said, but seriously, one day you're going to want to wish that you paid better attention in this class. So just right. Do it. Right. Said, what what could be better than like knowing how your inners work? <laughs> yeah, so I said, so just I said, just pay attention now while you're in it. <laughs> Yeah. 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 That's true. That's good advice, mama. Okay. So, um, so cortisol, so cortisol, again, a lot of people, especially in the health sphere, they fear cortisol because cortisol is catabolic. So it breaks the body down, but it, it doesn't just do that. Cortisol is also, it's involved in the immune system. It can, it suppresses one branch of the immune system and enhances another branch. But again, the body in its amazing wisdom might actually want you to be low cortisol so that the branch of the immune system that you don't want to be suppressed or that you do want to be suppressed. I'm sorry, I get a little wonky on the science here. I probably need to back off that. Let's, let's get back to cortisol. Um, it's we are made we are made for short quick bursts of stress where we really go wrong is when we have chronic stress because when we have chronic stress we are causing the adrenals to constantly pump out cortisol and that's where it can become catabolic to the body um, but cortisol's three main functions, let's talk about cortisol's three main functions, raise blood pressure, raise blood sugar, and modulate inflammation. So bring it up, bring it down. But so now think about that. So stress. And what, what do we need when we have stress? We need sort of like that quick burst of energy to the muscles. We need to be alert. We need to be able to run. That's sort of like the, the I'm, I'm talking about like the whole like evolutionary type, you know, or you know, mechanism of stress when, and everyone uses this, this expression, I'm going to use it too, because it is a pretty good, it's a little played out, but it's a pretty good, um, understanding if, you know, the caveman was being chased by the tiger, that adrenaline, which is also secreted by the adrenals, that adrenaline, you know, and that cortisol that helps to prime us to run or fight, right? Fight or flight. Um, so that therefore we get that blood sugar to be liberated, you know, to the muscles and we get that blood pressure up so that we can go into the either fight or flight. The problem with modern day society is that we are like we're hyper vigilant. We, we don't shut off. You know, we're always on the go. Um, you know, unless you are, you know, a person who really you know, tends to your diet and you eat good, healthy, whole foods, um, you know, you're causing inflammation in the body with eating poor quality food, you know, processed food. Um, a lot of people have undiagnosed, you know, or just they, they don't know that they have, you know, gut dysbiosis, um, inflammation. So that that is kind of keeps us all in that hypervigilant state. And that causes that cortisol to be constantly working and then you've got you know the catabolism going on in the body and inflammation 
and you know mitochondrial dysfunction, low energy, things like that. So cortisol is super important, but we want it to go to work for us when we need it to. Like if you are if you're charged with watching your favorite three-year-old and she's hurtling towards the street, yeah, cortisol to the rescue as you, you run after her. Um, what we don't want is a, you know, you staying in no-win situations, no-win jobs, stress, you know, stressful relationship, or obviously, you know, you can work on that relationship, but just, or, you know, not getting enough sleep, not eating, you know, healing foods, um, you know, not tending to your gut health if you've got gut problems, mm. because then you are causing just an over-release of cortisol. And I, what I really is also like, there are, yeah, what you said is that chronic stress is the problem, you know, because all sorts of things create stress from our emotional, you know, thoughts, our um, reactions, we, we, in the way that we process things, our own perception, um, you know, that has a big component of it. But we also have natural stresses, um, such as, you know, workouts. My workouts are high stress on the body, but that's good stress. And um, it's like too much work stress. That's when you get into these problems or too much environmental stress in a place that you're living. Um, But stress, cortisol is also um, known for its um, like anti-inflammatory response in the body. Yeah, like I said, it does modulate the immune system. There, it, it, um, let me see. I think it suppress. I might be getting things mixed up. So a lot of science. It suppresses the Th1 branch of the immune system and it enhances the Th2 branch of the immune system, or the other way around. I just don't have my notes in front of me right now. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, it, it, so it brings it up. It brings it down. Um, and that's really oversimplifying it, but it's 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 a pretty complex subject. It is a pretty cl- complex subject because I'm actually looking at something that says there's a bidirectional communication between the immune system and the HPA axis in which totally. the cytokines yep. stimulate the HPA axis and the resulting release of glutocorticoids provides negative feedback control of the immune system, keeping inflammation in check. So there's a ton to this. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I think there's still a lot we don't really know about physiology. Um, oh my gosh, I don't think we'll ever know it as much right, as we want to know. Right, right. That's a. It's it's we yeah we tr- we're trying. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. All right. So um, should I should I explain the HPA HPA axis in very simple terms? Sure. Yes. Please. Okay. Good. So this is, because this is something that I, I struggled years ago to really learn and understand. And I used to hear people tossing the term around and I never really understood it. So we've got the hypothalamus in the brain, which is sort of like the control center. It's always scanning. It's always like kind of scanning the body for threats and information. And it um, communicates to the pituitary there's a little hose between the hypothalamus and the pituitary. So the hypothalamus um, releases corticotropin-releasing hormone, we'll call it CRH, into the pituitary gland. And then the pituitary gland, it's funny, the pituitary gland is often called the master gland, but I really think it's the hypothalamus, but that we might just be splitting hairs there. They really do work together. Okay, so then the pituitary gland um releases a hormone called ACTH, and I think that's adrenocorticotropic hormone, 
Um, and then that the ACTH travels from the pituitary to the adrenals and then the adrenals make their hormones. Okay. And then that is, then there is the negative feedback is basically like the adrenals tell the hypothalamus and the pituitary, okay, we're handling this stress and the, the stress hopefully is going to quiet down and then the whole system is going to quiet down. But like I said, the problem is, so that's the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis for HPA axis. But the problem in today's society and why yoga and mindfulness and meditation is not just a luxury, but really a necessity, um, and because we need to find ways to calm down. Um, we need to find ways to calm down. And if you keep running and you keep that that part of the brain, which actually is the amygdala, in hypervigilant states, you're always going to have this kind of turned on HPA access. So huh. really doing mindfulness is super important. And And again, it is really about, like I think you hinted at this before, it is even, it doesn't even have to be a real stress. It's, it could be you, your perceived stress. So if you perceive it as stress, yes. then it is stressful. Yeah. Kelly McGonigal did a really good TED talk on that. And she's oh, like, okay. it's, it's really, I would say everybody should look that up. It's, uh, she's like, it's really about the way that you think about the stress that is the stress. Because, oh, it's so true. Yeah. yeah. Because like when we actually are under stress, the body has a built-in mechanism inside of our own heart. It's called, you know, dopamine is a love hormone and it is released when we hug. But when we're under stress, our heart pumps dopamine out like crazy. And that is our body's natural response to it urge you to go get a hug, to seek support, to get help. And um, it's really incredible. You know, you we were saying, saying how the body is just so amazing that the heart has that in, in it has a built-in mechanism in and of itself when stress happens to help you to go and get that release you need by seeking that hug when you need it. Yeah, that's great. I, I had a a pretty crappy day yesterday and it's so funny I, I my husband came in he comes home for lunch and he gave me like an extra hug I didn't go seek it out I should have but I didn't and it was an extra long hug and gave me a little shoulder rub and, and I cannot tell you I felt like so much better after that um, so yeah we do have to remember to you know hug more love more be mindful more smile more um, it really is. And, and when my children were young, I came upon this this way of dealing with stress. I did have four under six years old at one point. So imagine that for a moment. <laughs> four children under six years old. How stressful oh, that could be. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and with school and running them around and school projects and, you know, bringing things into the classroom and participating. And I once asked myself what and it's super simple. But I think women who are super crazy busy would be, you know, do well to ask themselves this question. What is the worst thing that's going to happen if I don't, let me fill in the blank here, make that homemade cake for my son's birthday party in the classroom? What's the worst thing that will happen? 
Mm-hmm. You might have to go out and buy something. Right. Well, you know, that's okay. So I actually used to use that a lot. What's the worst thing that will happen if I don't show up to this meeting? Or, you know, you just have to kind of insert it into your own life. And And for me, that really helped me. And luckily, from my adrenal stress, you know, my tests on my Dutch test, I didn't test back then, but you know, I've been testing, um, I have access, easy access to the test, so I like to test every six months, and my adrenals really look good, and that's because I do, I, I am as mindful as possible, I get, you know, angry and frustrated when my computer doesn't work like <laughs> every person, but um, I, I really do try to practice mindfulness, and you know, a little bit of yoga here and there and um, just really try to, oh, gratitude is huge, mm-hmm. huge. Um, and you know what? My, my test results show that it, it's borne out, you know, by my lifestyle. So I'm, I'm happy to say that. Not That's, perfect in every area, but the adrenals are, are doing pretty good. Well, at least you have like, you have an understanding, you have a way to test it, you have a baseline, which is fabulous. Um, quick question. How much does the Dutch test run on average? Yeah. Okay. Great. So the Dutch test, they have a few different versions, but you know, they have a month long version, which is, um, really for people with severe menstrual difficulties. But, um, the, the basic version is called the adrenal complete. Now, if you go on their website and it's dutchtest.com, you will see that the listed price for the test is $399. So don't, don't shriek because it's actually not that expensive. Um, when you work with a practitioner, they should be able to get the test for you. I say should. I'm going to explain that in a moment. But when you work with a practitioner, the price um, is 250 for the test. And I say should because, um, t- you know, a practitioner can mark up the, the cost of the test. Um, I don't do that, though. And, and most of the people I know don't do that, although there are several that do. So you should be able to get the test for $250, and that's, that's what I do. Okay. Very yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, you know, I was at Kohl's last night looking at some jackets for my son. And you mentioned this earlier that we need to have more calm in our lives. And I was sitting there and I was checking out and they had a, the chip reader now. And I was like, you have a chip? She's like, oh, yes, we have the chip. So I put my card in there and looked away. I was just kind of looking around. And the noise it made when it wanted me to remove my card was awful, obnoxious. Yeah. (laughs) No, and it wasn't beeping like I've heard elsewhere. It wasn't lovely. It was like a (laughs) I was stealing something. I go, whoa. And I quickly removed my card and I looked at her, I go, geez, that needs to be a little bit more polite. (laughs) And she goes, yeah, you know, somebody else said that too. And And we just started talking about that. And I said, you know what? We... I go, I own a yoga studio and I deal with people all day trying to help them calm down. And I said, we have enough going on in our own brains that we have to try and quiet down. We don't need other things outside of us yelling at us. <laughs> yeah, they probably don't want to be charged with uh, people leaving their cards behind and getting them back to them. But I hear you. Yeah, no. So technology is awesome. Um, you know, it, I think it's made the world a small, smaller place, has brought people together like you and I, but it also has certainly introduced, um, you know, definitely a lot more stress into our lives and, and something like even like getting off 
blue screens and computers and phones and things late at night is super important to, you know, to help help with that stress as yeah. well. Yeah. Well, and she was like, you know, it would be nice. If, I said, we just need more lovely things. What is What would be the problem with that? If it was a lovely sound versus a obnoxious oh, sound? Oh, love it. I love that. So more, more delight and wonder. Yes. Like we can yeah. easily do that. It doesn't have to be loud and obnoxious to get your attention. It can be lovely and nice and, and really, truly get your honest attention. See, and that's an observation from a mindful person right there. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I well, agree. Well, hopefully the right people hear this message and make that change. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, go ahead. <laughs> All right. So we covered, um, let me see. Okay. So one more hormone that I want to talk about on the Dutch test is melatonin. Melatonin is our sleep hormone. It's made in the pineal gland in the brain, but here's an interesting little, um, thing for you. It's actually also made in our gut as well. So, um, and melatonin runs counter to cortisol. So when cortisol is high, melatonin should be low. And when, when melatonin is high, cortisol should be low. So, and if I see a certain melatonin reading on the Dutch test, um, I, that, that might indicate gut problems. Then, you know, if there's, if melatonin is low, then it might be indicative of gut problems. Um, I can sometimes, you know, say to someone, well, you know, depending on their presenting symptoms and their, um, you know, their, their lab results, because here's another thing, Liz, we are never, ever, ever just a set of lab results that unfortunately is typically what the medical, the, the, the kind of conventional medical community goes on. Oh, well, your, your labs are fine. You're in range, you know, everything's fine. Yet a woman can have, you know, um, tremendous weight gain at the hips and facial hair and, you know, hasn't had a menstrual cycle in four months, but your labs check out fine and therefore you're fine. So we are never, ever, ever our lab results. We are our labs interpreted in light of who's the person, whose labs are these, what are your symptoms? Um, so melatonin, uh, can sometimes indicate, all right, we've got to do a little bit of gut testing as well. And then of course, it's not just melatonin that makes me make that call. It would also be cortisol levels because high nighttime cortisol can be again, indicative of gut problems. So the Dutch test is great for the face value information that it gives us. And then for, you know, those in the know, there are some other sort of like, um, little indications that are not definitively diagnostic, but they point a finger towards other potentials. So let me see. Um, the Dutch test will also give us cortisone. Cortisone is the inactive form of cortisol. So lots of data there. And I'm just trying to think if I want to give you any other hormone 101 information. And just so you know, guys, I don't work at all for the Dutch test, nor do I receive any type of affiliate or kickback information from them. I just really like the test. Yeah. So well, we all so. have our things we like and especially yeah. if it works and give you the right, the right readings that you need. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's just so it's a really, it's a ton of great information and I'm sure that even if a guy is curious, they can take that test too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Obviously the ranges are different for men. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, sure. 
absolutely. Guys so can do it. let's actually talk about that for a minute. If a man, well, let's talk about both. If a woman is out of balance in any of these, you know, I'm sure there's a whole prescription on what to do um, from, you know, more mindfulness activities, yoga, deep breathing, relaxation to maybe adding a cream or taking things out of your diet. Like what? Oh, I don't know if I just opened a can of worms with that. One. <laughs> well, we can, we can give one example. I think I know where you're going. You want to know like what a, what a protocol might be for someone. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's take really a super common one, which is a woman has basically what I said before, estrogen dominance, which is high estrogen. And in most, it's most cases, it's high estrogen, low progesterone. Okay. So that is multifaceted, but um, in some cases, using a little bit of progesterone might be warranted, but that is certainly not the only thing that she can do. So let's also talk about ways to lower estrogen. So if we have high estrogen, low progesterone, we really want to lower that estrogen in most cases. Now, what we can do is um, we can check our personal care products, make sure that they don't have phthalates in them and parabens because those can be like estrogen mimickers and they can sit on the receptor for estrogen in our body and cause like a cascade of endocrine confusion. So getting um, body care products that, you know, that are not, they're, they're more, I don't want to say natural, that's a little bit of an overused word. They're just non-endocrine disrupting and um, you can certainly like, you know, Anne-Marie Gianni skincare is great, Beauty Beauty Counter is great. There are definitely other brands, but those are the two things that come to mind. Um, okay, so what getting was that, that ingredient again? Um, the ingredient or the the brand the brands? No, the ingredient that you some some. Oh, phthalates and parabens. Oh, okay. Yeah. So so getting that away from yourself is great. You know, finding you know especially the stuff that stays on the skin, so like creams and makeup. You know, not having that stuff in there because you will get a little bit of estrogen mimicking exposure. And, and just so you know, this is not like um, some crunchy granola advice. Our, our own environmental protection agency has recognized the problem of what they call endocrine disruptors. Mm -hmm. So very easy to find that information. People can go to the EWG Skin Deep database and check their products. And for like soy, soy is an endocrine disruptor. Soy is a definitely very controversial. You can get, you know, 10 nutritionists say it's fine, 10 not. Um, I I don't eat soy, but I accept maybe once in a blue moon I'll have a little bit of miso. Um, I think miso is great. But um, as far as regular soy, like tofu, I don't eat that. Or even edamame, I don't. Um, okay. So then in terms of getting rid of, of estrogen dominance, you can, um, you can make sure that you're not constipated because if you are, like I said, that can build up estrogen in the body. Another major issue for, endo uh, for estrogen dominance and something that doesn't really make me too popular with women is telling them that they should investigate for the, for themselves, um, finding a non-hormonal method of birth control. So I, that's, that's can be a bit of a challenge for women. I totally get that. I, I feel that there is a place, 
in this world for the pill, but the fact of the matter is, is that the pill switches off progesterone production. It, it switches down estrogen too, but it really just switches off your own hormones and it stops ovulation. So remember from our earlier discussion, when you don't ovulate, you do not produce progesterone. And if you're not producing progesterone, then you are just by default bound to eventually become estrogen dominant. So, so yeah. let me ask you a question on that. And I don't know if you would know this answer because this would take a lot of clinical research. And I think that this would be good actual clinical research to do if it's not being done yet to study people who were on birth control for years, decades, you know, Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and to see what happens to them when they come off of it. I was on birth control literally like from the age of 10 because that's when oh, I started wow. my period to the age of pretty much like 23 when I decided I do not want to be on this. Oh, good and, for you. Well, and then I got pregnant. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> uh, um, but well. still, nonetheless, I quit and I quit that year and I never went back on it. So, oh, okay. Okay. Um, you know, since then I've been doing natural birth control when Fantastic. I'm in a relationship, yeah. but I'm single now, so I don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, good. Okay. Yep. Right. My intention is not to have women just like um, carte blanche go with the birth control, but you know, they, it really does have to, you have to be invested in that and learn about, you know, natural birth control for sure, or just a non-hormonal method, whether that's barrier or not. So, you know, some women, like for instance, when you came, well, obviously when you came off at 23, you didn't have any problems. Some women have what we call post-pill amenorrhea and it can take it can take up to a year to have their period come back. It's obviously different for every woman. What I see in, in my health coaching practice is that I have women in their like late 40s, maybe around 50, and they've been on birth control. You know, maybe they had children, right? Mm-hmm. They went off of it to have children, um, and now they're on. They don't know if they're in menopause or not mm-hmm. because they are so out of touch with their body. Um, because you know, the, the, the period that you get, if you get a period on birth control, it's not a real period. It's a withdrawal bleed. And so you're basically withdrawing the, the, the synthetic hormones of the pill. And then that basically forces a bleed. So it's not a real period at all. So that, that's my concern for women that have been on it really for decades with small breaks, Mm. perhaps to have children is they just are so incredibly out of touch with their body. Um, and you know, when you're out of touch with your body going into menopause, it, it, it can be a rocky time. You know, I had a, I had a moment where I was like, Ooh, maybe I should go on the pill if it will <laughs> mask some of my symptoms, but no, that is not a good idea. Um, yeah, no, because, because you, you will deal with them eventually, you know, you, you yeah. really can't be on it forever. Mm-hmm. So Yes, that reminds me of a quote, which I don't know what it is, but I read it yesterday, and it was something like, there's three things that you can't deny. It's taxes, uh, death, and truth, or something like that. Oh, yeah, okay. the truth always comes out of what you've been masking or hiding. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so estrogen dominance. So so again, for a, for a woman, it would be like, you know, kind of evaluating her relationship with birth control. Um, oh, here's a biggie is, um, exposure to xenoestrogens. So that's like estrogen outside the body 
in typical um, supermarket meat. So that's oh. supermarket meat comes from like concentrated animal feeding operations. So if you're going to eat meat, you know, really grass grass pastured, mm-hmm. you know, get with a local farmer if you can. I'm so lucky. I have a local farmer that's about 15 minutes, um, and you know, he I get get eggs there and meat and sausage if I want it. Um, and yeah, so if you if you have the ability to do that. Yeah, it's a little bit of extra work. You know, I go like once a month or once every two months on a Saturday and I bring a little cooler and I probably buy about 100 to $150 worth of stuff. And, you know, I can't just pop down to the supermarket. Um, I even heard Dave Asprey say that if he cannot get um, pastured meat in a in a restaurant, that he'd rather go vegetarian for the night. So... I thought that was was pretty interesting on his part, but you're going to get exposure to exogenous hormones if you eat supermarket meat. I'm sure once in a while is fine, so don't sweat it if you're out at a restaurant or company function and you have to eat that way, but what, you know, what's under your control, you want to try to avoid at all costs um, supermarket meat. Yes. Okay. That's up. We don't need we have enough of our own hormones. We don't need you know, extra synthetic hormones that have been pumped into, um, again, livestock like that. Right. Well, I mean, that is just a no brainer. And the fact that we don't really, I mean, it's like education is key, you know, ignorance is not bliss. (laughs) Oh yeah, totally. You you know, like just knowing this, you know, you're buying hormones and you're putting that into your body, you're going to disrupt something. You're going to, and you don't know what the outcome's going to be. Yeah. And it's really, it's just like everything coming at us from so many sides. It could be the beauty products with the phthalates and the parabens and the supermarket meat. Um, and you know, just the, the sugar that we're eating that's causing our estrogen to, you know, turn into testosterone and, and just so much potential disruption. It takes mindfulness it takes intention. Oh, you know, sometimes it takes money, but I always say, you know, what would you rather pay for? I would rather pay for, you know, grass-fed beef and good healthy food and then, you know, spending my 40s, 50s and 60s sitting in dreary medical offices because, you know, I've got, you know, estrogen re- receptor positive breast cancer or or something like that. So, um, I'm working towards not being that person. Of course, we we don't, you know, we we don't know what's going to happen. But you know, the chances are that if we do the right things, we will be healthy, and and that's really what I'm going with. Mm-hmm. All right. So one more thing in terms of estrogen dominance. If a woman has high estrogen, there is one particular supplement that is really super helpful, and it's called DIM. D I M called DIM, it stands for methane, and it is an extract of cruciferous vegetables, like so broccoli, cauliflower, arugula, they're all considered cruciferous vegetables, um, and that can really, really help to lower estrogen. So DIM is a supplement that I recommend. What I don't like is women just go ahead and take DIM without knowing for sure Um, They have high estrogen because if you are the type of estrogen dominant where you're low estrogen, like I said earlier, you can be low estrogen and estrogen dominant because that means you have low estrogen and even lower progesterone. 
and you take DIM, you're going to really kind of obliterate any estrogen that you have, and that's never the goal. The goal is not to kill the estrogen. The goal is to get the estrogen in balance. So DIM is, in my opinion, it's contraindicated for women who are have the form of estrogen dominance that's low estrogen, even lower progesterone. So therefore, um, test that's really where testing comes into play. I'm not a person who recommends, you know, remedies and supplements beyond, you know, your basics, right? Like maybe a little bit of vitamin D or a little fish oil or whatever. But like when you get into like condition specific supplementation like DIM, I don't recommend just taking it in, you know, blindly like that. Okay. Yeah. I understand that completely. Um, with the, is there anything else that you would? Um, okay. So for estrogen dominance, we did dim, we did watch the supermarket meat, watch your, um, beauty care products. Um, I really, you know, that I, I don't, I haven't seen any studies on this, but I have heard, I've, I've spoke to a doctor who's a OBGYN holistic and he's a PhD as well. And he said, you know, that possibly the water, the water supply contains traces of birth control. I didn't know. It sounds a little bit hokey to me. I'll be honest with you, but you know, it can't help whether you're estrogen dominant or not to filter your water. So I would say, you know, get a water filter just for your overall health. Water is so incredibly necessary for us and you want to get it as clean and pure as possible. Okay. Um, let me back up. What did you say this? What would happen if somebody does take DIM and they don't need it? Okay. So DIM is really useful for women that have high estrogen. But if you are, let's say if you're a woman who is, I'm just going to throw out a likely scenario, 48, 49, 50, and you're going through perimenopause and you don't have high estrogen, you do not want to take DIM because DIM DIM lowers estrogen. And we also spoke about the pathways before where I said the 2-OH, the 2-hydroxy pathway is really the, it's the pathway we want our body to send our estrogen down. DIM will also help to have you make the correct type of estrogen metabolites. So DIM is awesome, but only if you have high estrogen. If you have low estrogen and you use DIM, you're going to lower your estrogen even more and that is usually not a good thing. Usually not a good thing. You don't want to you don't want to obliterate estrogen altogether. You just want to get it into balance. So for women that are low estrogen and estrogen dominant, there are other um, there are other protocols to do that, that do not include DIM. Yeah. Okay. All right. Makes sense to me. Oh, and then uh, well, I think we'll probably close with this in terms of um, in terms of estrogen dominance liver health you have to have a really well functioning liver if you have you know liver congestion or just liver is just not working good then um, you're not going to be able to bind up the estrogen in the liver and the liver sends it to the colon for removal so really working on liver health is super important for helping the body to correctly process the estrogen um, so sometimes women will need to 
you know, do things like take a little milk thistle, maybe do some castor oil packs just to kind of bump up liver health. Liver and hormones is is very, they're very intricately related. Hmm. So that that's actually what I do. I create those protocols for people based on their, their testing results. That's awesome. I think that now that I'm 38 years old, it's time that I do this for the first time and just kind of see where I'm at. Ah, well, love to do that. Yeah, we're yeah. happy to do that for you. Let's do it. And oh, and I will just say this: when you have, you know, for you this would be a baseline test, and um, you know, a Dutch test would be baseline at, at 38. The the great thing, and I, it's a little hard to look this far ahead, but let's just say at 50 or 51, you're in menopause, right? And you just decide to, you know, I, I want to do, you know, you, between you and your doctor, you decide, you know, I need a little bit of estrogen and testosterone and progesterone replacement that can be in suppositories or creams. You're going to have a very valuable baseline as to what your estrogen and progesterone was in what I call the tidy years. So 20s and 30s, you are you make kind of tidy amounts of hormones from month to month generally. You know, late 30s, you might be starting to, you know, change a little bit. But still, I would say, you know, having this test can be, will be your baseline. And then you just store it away. I always tell my clients, you know, you really need to, whether you keep it on a hard drive or, or you know, in your computer or in a folder, you really need to keep your lab results from year to year to year because mm -hmm. it's the patterns that you're looking for. Yeah. So that's just another good thing about getting the Dutch test in, in your 20s or 30s. Yeah, I mean, and everything changes year to year, you know, with, well, and also foods that you eat have a lot to do with it. Stress oh, levels, yeah. everything, it yeah. all plays mm -hmm. together. So like you could be in some situation right now and a year from now completely different everything changes oh sure that's just how it goes yes mm -hmm. absolutely <laughs> all right well man this was great information i'm so glad that we did this call oh thank you absolutely my pleasure love talking about this stuff as you can tell i can nerd out about it pretty pretty quickly <laughs> oh yeah well i love it it's i love nerding out <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that I'm nerding out with somebody else rather than all by myself here is a good thing. Thank you, Liz. Yeah, yeah. you're welcome. You know, I'm having this um, eventually. I don't know when yet, but I'm gonna. I want to create this retreat for women, like a week long retreat. And um, this morning when I was meditating, I was just thinking about different aspects to bring into it. And this was like, oh, I need to have this as a big segment because understanding this is just key. So. Um, I've been on a lot of retreats and I've been to, you know, um, you know, business seminars and things like that. And this one that I want to create is really all about the, the goddess, the feminine, the divine feminine and, um, understanding in totality. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do you achieve that? How do you de-stress? How do you live in this world as a human? That's also a spiritual being and <laughs> have happiness and peace and so that's what my my intention is with my event and uh i think that this would be a great component to have at that uh, i i have a, a workshop that i'm doing here locally at my studio and i wish you could come to it oh i would love to i know oh. i'm i'm actually gonna have this information from you from this call and i'm actually going to talk to a local expert who actually 
um, works with women prescribing. She works at a pharmacy here. And this is where all the women go to is to get their creams, to get their hormone, their pills and everything balanced out. And I've heard good stories and I've heard bad stories. So I'm actually really interested to talk with her too and see what she has to say. That's cool. And, you know, like I said, I'm not anti-hormone um, replacement therapy. should always be bioidentical and not synthetic. But there's a lot more to, you know, than just topping off some lost hormone levels. There's nutrition, mindset, appropriate movement, um, things like that, yeah. stress reduction. So, you, yeah, those, those that, you know, hormone therapy in and of itself really absolutely must be paired with a whole lifestyle program. Mm-hmm. Oh, so true. So true. All right. Well, on that note, just thank you so much for coming on the show again today. I learned a ton and I'm sure the listeners did too. So thanks again. Thank you. Maria, so how can people get a hold of you, find you and work with you? Oh, sure. Thank you so much for asking. Okay. So my guide to perimenopause, it's called Create the Perimenopause You Want to Have. And that is at mariascopes.com. So it's M-A-R-I-A-S-C-O-P-E-S, mariascopes.com. And that's my perimenopause guide. And then I also have a free Facebook community called Hormone Health for Women. And it's just kind of a warm, welcoming community of women. I've got a couple of experts in the group. So there's me. And then I have a, a few naturopaths and I have a, a, a medical doctor who's an OBGYN and he's a PhD and he's the only dude in the group, but he's really helpful and he answers questions for, for the ladies. So you can find, you know, you can search for hormone health for women on Facebook. I'd be happy to add you. It's, it's really gals only. And then my website is nourish and flourish health.com. Thank you so much for asking Liz. Oh yeah, you're welcome. All right, everyone work with Maria if you have anything like this you just want to know I'm I'm going to do it it's definitely something that uh, I'd like to get that baseline on and just kind of understand because my my periods lately have uh, they've been heavier and I've been more weepy beforehand and I'm just like what is going on with me this isn't this isn't me <laughs> yeah well, I'd love to work with you awesome all right well thank you so much for coming on the show and you have a fantastic day thank you Liz you too thanks Thank you guys so much for spending your time with me today on the Figure Fit Lifestyle Coaching Podcast. I am incredibly grateful that you stopped by. If you could take just one second to share this episode with someone you think would love it and who can use it, I would be so incredibly grateful and honored. And I know that your friends will thank you too. Also, if you feel so moved, we would be incredibly grateful if you could go into iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Leave us an honest thought, an honest comment. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you love. Tell us what you need more of. It would really help us out on our journey to help thousands and thousands of people reconnect back to their soul, live a life of health and happiness, and to love the body that they are in. Until then, don't forget that you are so worth your own self-love, self-care, and investment in your body, your goals, and your life. 
Thank you so much for tuning in today, everybody. Have a great day.